It just reminds me of our goal, which is that when we see him, it's all about him. And we're just going to lay everything that he did through us at his feet. And it's all him. It's not me. It's not my effort. It's not my good person or what I can do. But it's Jesus. And you see, we have our problems on one hand and we have Jesus on the other. And if we focus on our problems, we're undone. But as Jesus becomes the focus and as we abide in him and look to him, he becomes our focus. And there's nothing that Jesus' life has not already overcome. Nothing. And I've never seen a person who is focused on Jesus not have victory. Because what you focus on captures you. Ultimately, what you focus on captures you. And you only think about one thing at a time, right? So why not think about Jesus and have him be your life? Well, we are continuing in uh, the Beatitudes. And last week we talked about being poor in spirit. Today we're going to talk about uh, blessed are those who mourn. And I look forward to that. Now I have my Bible up here. I'm not going to open it up because it's a big old heavy thing. Uh, but I'm going to leave it right there in case I need it. But most of this stuff's already down in my notes. And so we'll, we'll get into that. Um, you guys remember, this kind of dates me. You remember Evil Knievel? Remember Evil Knievel? Now, he was a big deal in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, and I was a kid. And I wanted to be like Evil Knievel. You remember what Evil Knievel did? He jumped buses and cars and all kinds of stuff. Remember Snake River Canyon? I think that's in Idaho, isn't it? Or Montana? Anyways, that was a big deal. He wanted to jump the Grand Canyon. But the government wouldn't let him. They said, you nut, you're not going to jump the Grand Canyon. And they said, no, because it's, it's uh, federal land. And then, uh, now I, I think he may have tried on some Arapaho land. They, I think they, they said, hey man, this guy can make us some money. This idiot wants to try and jump, let him do it. But he eventually did try to jump, I think, Snake River Canyon in 1974. And uh, I don't think he was successful. I think he got across and then his parachute came out. Really, it was, it was more of a jet pack that he was on, right? And the jet pack, you remember that? It was on Sunday afternoon. Let me tell you, man, I was glued to the TV. I remember telling my parents, I don't care what's on. We're watching him jump Snake River Canyon, all right? And I was at that time about 10. And so he, uh, here he is. He takes off and he shoots you out across that thing. I, I didn't think he would do it. I think he was going to chicken out. And I kept thinking, no, he's a, he's a man of his word. He's going to try and do it. And so they set him up, and they shoot him out across. And about halfway out, what happens? His chute came out. And that thing just sort of dangled down, and he ended up coming all the way over to the other side of the creek, the other side of the river. So he ended up not doing it. Now, my understanding, I just got this off the Internet, is that uh, during his career, he suffered more than 433 bone fractures. <laughs> earning an entry into the Guinness Book of World Records as the survivor of most bones broken in a lifetime. So that is his fame to life. Now, did you know that Evil Knievel got saved before he died? In 2007, he gave his life to the Lord. And I heard his testimony, and he was baptized. Uh, and boy, I tell you, he did. He got saved. He had really given his life to the Lord Jesus. And so it was really interesting to listen to what God had done in his life. But 433 bone fractures... Oh my goodness, even one would drive me crazy. But he, uh, he was a daredevil. You know, this reminds me of Christians who attempt to live out the Sermon on the Mount. They're like evil Knievel, 
trying to jump Snake River Canyon. Except they don't have a rocket pack. They just have a good head start. And a good head start's not going to get you across Snake River Canyon. It'll get you in Snake River Canyon. (laughs) But it's not going to get you across Snake River Canyon. The first time, I remember the first time I read the Sermon on the Mount, after the Lord really got a hold of my heart, it produced a sense of desperation. And I redoubled my efforts and strived at a greater level. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it. I'm going to do it. This is the rule. This is the standard. It's been set. And the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to do it if it kills me. Ever been there? I'm going to do it if it kills me. And the more I read it, the greater the sense of despair. And the result of my redoubling my efforts was defeat and failure. Continued defeat and failure. And more defeat and failure. And the more I tried, the more I failed. And the more I read it, the greater the sense of despair. Because I knew I couldn't keep it in my efforts. But that didn't keep me from trying. Now, mind you, I was saved. I'd given my life to the Lord. Matter of fact, I don't know how many times I'd given my heart to the Lord. Anybody done a rededication? If you were in Southern Baptist life, you rededicated. And if you didn't rededicate, I want to talk to you. You have to rededicate. You were really never Southern Baptist if you never rededicated. Now, my wife always warns me about that. She says, now, there's some folks in there you're going to offend. Well, if I've offended you, brother and sister, I'm sorry. You come and talk to me. I'm more than happy. I've gotten an earful from Presbyterians and all kinds of people. (laughs) But I did. I mean, I rededicated. But here's the thing. Once you give your life to Jesus, he never gives it back. It's his. And under the new covenant, how could he? It's in his blood. And you're his. But we have this thing called self. In the flesh, in our heart. That's the residue, the old man, that God has to deal with. And it causes me to keep trying and to try. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is really the man on the mount. And he is the only one who has ever lived the Christian life. The Sermon on the Mount is not about what you and I are going to do. The Sermon on the Mount is there to produce desperation and despair. So that in absolute failure, you will say, I can't do it. And Jesus says, finally, thank you very much. I'm the only one who's ever done it, and I'm the only one who can do it. And by the way, I've never said you could do it, nor did I ask you to. I always knew you couldn't. I never asked you to. I will always do it, and I always told you I would. And we enter into it by faith. We enter into it by faith. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about, is bringing us to a point of despair where we say, I can't do it, God. You have to do it in me through Christ Because my efforts, my trying, hasn't gotten it done. Ever been there? Let me answer for you. Yes. We've all been there at some point. And that is where God wants the Christian to come so that they feel a sense of desperation. A sense of, I can't do it. And this is why he starts with, blessed are those who are poor in what? Spirit. And then from there he goes, blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. You see, the Beatitudes, we see a way to spiritual life. Now, I did a a bit of a foolish thing. I taught my Hebrews class today. And Debbie said, I didn't know you did that. And uh, I said, yeah, I did. Uh, So my voice, I'm going to try and keep it. I'm not going to yell at you tonight, this morning, okay? I'm not going to do that. But it's the way to spiritual life, which is first brokenness, then mourning, then comfort and encouragement, and in that order. But it comes with spiritual poverty blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted now I, I looked at this and 
This is my translation. Blessed are the mourning ones. In other words, continuously. Because they shall be comforted. That's really what it's saying. Those who are mourning now and they continue to. They're the ones, because of that, they'll be comforted. They'll receive comfort. They'll receive consolation. Kenneth Woost, a theologian from the last century, who I have great respect for, and he wrote a translation of the entire Bible. And this is how he put it, and I think this is really captures the context. It captures the essence of it. Spiritually prosperous are those who are mourning, because they themselves shall be encouraged and strengthened by consolation. You see, it's talking about a spiritual condition. Not just a soul condition. It's talking about those who are understanding that spiritually they're in poverty. And when they do, they can become spiritually prosperous. Those who understand that they are mourning and broken. And they can be spiritually prosperous. So let's take a look at the passage. Because this is a really the way, if you will, into spiritual growth. The Beatitudes is the way into spiritual growth. If you look at this first word, blessed, it means happy or fortunate. I like spiritually prosperous because it's good to the context of what Jesus is trying to say. It's linked to the context of the discourse itself. It's spiritual life. Blessed, spiritually prosperous are those who are the mourning ones. It's present active right now. Now you're blessed. You know, the Middle Eastern individual understands mourning. They really understand mourning and the benefits of it. Here in the West, we don't always understand that. So when someone says, you're spiritually prosperous because you mourn, we don't always get it. But they do. The word they're mourning ones is an ongoing or a character of life in relationship with God and man. What this is talking about is of the heart. It's going to the heart. The heart of the matter. Where is my heart? Not just your outward activity. Some people I know say, oh, I have a hard time, you know, crying. I have a hard time mourning. I have a hard time doing that. Well, that's all right. Where's your heart? Some of us are built that way. We don't cry as much as others. Others cry more. There's no shame in that. I knew a pastor once. A woman was on the front row. She was crying the entire time he was preaching. He says, well, I get that, you know. So he goes and talks to her and says, why are you crying? She said, my husband died two weeks ago. And she says, I feel bad because the Bible says, be joyous and uplifted in heart. And I'm not. And he said, well, sister, keep crying. Just keep crying until you can't cry anymore. And you know what? The joy of the Lord will be your strength. Just keep crying. Don't worry about that. She was confusing those two. There's a time to mourn, amen? There's a time when we mourn. And it's a healthy thing. Mourning for individuals could go on for weeks and months, depending on who the person was in Eastern life. You read the Bible, and they would mourn for people for how long? A week, month, longer than that. Could be months they were mourning. In the Middle East, they understand that. They get what mourning can do. But you first have to understand that the spiritually prosperous are the ones who mourn. And there's something that comes before mourning, and that is poverty of spirit, or what I'm going to call brokenness. Brokenness comes before you can be spiritually prosperous. And mourning comes after that brokenness. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Mourning was seen 
or the ability to mourn or that continual process of mourning was seen as a part of the birth, life, death process. A necessary part of who we are. And again, in this context, it refers to the heart. A heart that has been broken of pride and can respond to the Lord properly in regards to sin. But also in grieving Him. The heart relationship with Him is what we mourn. When I'm broken and my pride is broken, my heart is what has been, if you will, torn. And now I begin to grieve not only what it's cost me with God, but what it's done to other people. So it is not only horizontally in relationship, it is vertical. And by the way, it's never focused on self. Real mourning is focused on what it has done not only to me, but also to others and to God in that relationship and how it has hurt them. And it brings that grief that leads ultimately to humility. Ecclesiastes 7.24 says this, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Someone said, what is mirth? That's, just, that's merriment. In the house of merriment. What is the writer saying? He says, listen, the wise person understands that it is through the pathway of mourning that we come into the presence of God. It is in the pathway of mourning our sin, of mourning what's happened, of mourning what we've done to Him, of mourning what we've done to others. It is in that humility of spirit that we come into His presence. It's not through laughter and mirth and just having a good time, but it's someone who has allowed the Holy Spirit to come into them and do a work in them. Sometimes our laughter can be a cover for pain. And I've, I've, that's happened to me. I've used laughter, and I know people, they use laughter to cover their pain. Rather than letting the pain do what? Come to the surface. Let the pain have its impact. And when that does, there's mourning. But it leads to something. It leads to something better. Psalms 34, 18 says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is close and near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You see, pride is being dealt with. Pride is being crushed. And God works through that. He works through that. That poverty of spirit and then that mourning. Because it brings humility before Him. This is not just, again, vertical in our relationship with Christ, but horizontal as well. Our relationship with family, with other believers and in the world. I was talking about this in my class earlier. You know that the greatest miracle is to be able to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. When I see that in myself or in other people, I can, I can tell right away that there has been brokenness, there has been mourning, and they at some point have probably been comforted because they can forgive. And you're always, it's a little dangerous when you bring this topic up, especially even in church, because people say, well, what about what they did to me? Well, that's not approval of the action. That's simply acceptance of the forgiveness you've received and by the power of Jesus Christ, you give to somebody else. And it only comes through brokenness, through mourning. And then the comfort comes. 
You see, the Spirit of Jesus in us will mourn when we are rightly related to God in Christ. We will have a soft heart that responds quickly to Him and to others. It's like a child who either has a hard heart or a soft heart. Now, when I was dealing with my boys as they were growing up, I didn't do everything right. And I'm going to be really honest because one of them sitting right here. I didn't do everything right. Because in my flesh, I did things wrong. But one of the things when I would discipline them is to see what? Their response. Because if I discipline them and they're still like this, that means more discipline's coming. And if I discipline them again and they're still like this, yeah, we got some more coming. What are we trying, what do we want to see as parents? We want to see a brokenness. We want to see a brokenness of that rebellion, of that pride. We want to see what? That's the heart beginning to mourn. And even though it's through pain, it's, it's the kind of change that is good for us. It's the type of thing that God wants to see in his children. A softening of the heart that responds quickly to him. And it's an ongoing process all the time. And what I have found in my own life is that I can just be driving and God says something to me and I mourn it. I don't mourn it to get down on myself. I mourn it because of my relationship to Jesus. It's in the context of relationship that God cares about it. And if you've, um, as, you, as you work through that and as you let God do that, what you're going to find is that as you get closer to him, the more you mourn. If you have a close relationship with your spouse, when I offend Cindy, can you imagine that, that I ever would offend Cindy? When I offend Cindy, it, I mean, really, seriously, in my flesh, how could I do that? But I do. And then when I realize it, as I have gotten closer to her, I mourn. Does that make sense? That's what we're talking about. And I go, oh, wow. Now, sometimes I can mourn because of my image and maybe something in my flesh is trying to get something. Does that make sense? Or I can care more about who she is and my relationship God with God and with her. And there is a cross. And I say, oh, Father, forgive me. And then it's not just enough to go to her, to him, but who else do I have to go to? Her. And I have to say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Matter of fact, let's say that together. It's just good to say it. Let's say it. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Oh, doesn't that feel good? Don't you just feel better? Just let it all out. And by the way, your flesh is worse than you think. It's even worse than that. But let's not go there. I just want to deal with, just deal with that one thing. Don't have time for the rest. It's a beautiful thing. The word sense or is really, or the word for here is actually it's interesting. It's not the word for for. It's the word for because or sense, which is a better word there. Because is a better word, and it sets up the next part of the sentence. It's better in context. We'll be comforted, and this is where we're going to look at for a little bit. The word is uh, perikaleo. It's the same word in the Greek used to refer to the Holy Spirit in the 14th and 15th chapters of John. Remember where John is writing, he sa- and Jesus is talking, and he says, And when I go to, go to the Father, my Father will send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. Now, some of your Bibles may have the Helper. That's, that's not, I don't like that. Helper is not a good one. God does not come to help you. He comes to take over. Does that make sense? He is in you wanting to do it. And we'll talk more about rest here in a minute. But he is the comforter or the counselor or the guide. That's a better word. 
That's what this is talking about, a comforter. This word is future tense with the passive voice, which means God does it in us. It's his work to comfort us. This is something the Holy Spirit does in you. He gives the comfort as we respond. The Holy Spirit will, through his life, comfort you. You say, Cook, how does he do that? Several ways, through his word. Have you ever gone to the word of God and gotten comfort? Now, sometimes I've opened the Bible up and I just say, God, I got to have a word. And I lay it out on the bed and I look it up and it says, may your children be dashed against the rocks. And I'm like, no, that's not it. That's not the word I'm looking for. That is not the word I'm looking for. You say, why do you say that? It is in context. I just know I'm going to fall off here sometime. We need some stairs right there. Because I want to get down here is where I want to get. It is in context of relationship. Does that make sense? So when you're in the Word and you're in relationship and you're walking with Him, as you're in the Word, there will be comfort as you mourn. Isn't that wonderful, a promise of God? He doesn't just want you to mourn. He wants to comfort you in the power of the Holy Spirit through His Word, by His power, and in His strength. And He'll do it. He also does it in prayer and time alone with Him, in His presence. He also does it through other believers. Through other believers. When I'm in my time with him, a lot of times I pray the scripture. In other words, I bring the word and I pray that. And I say, Father, speak to me in that word. What is it you're trying to say to me there? And just meditate on it. And there's comfort in that. And then there's other times when I just pray and I'm silent before God. I challenge you to spend five minutes in silence before God and see what happens to your soul. It, <laughs> just try it. Five minutes in silence. You'll be surprised where your soul's at. And then through other believers. Ever come and had a word from another believer who just encouraged you? It's just encouraging. And someone says something, you go, thank you. That was so encouraging. That didn't come from them. Who did that come from? The Holy Spirit did that for you. To encourage you when you mourn. Those who mourn are the ones who receive this comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What's the purpose of the comfort? So that we may do what? Comfort others. Isn't that amazing? It's never self-centered. The cross is never about you or me. It's about what God's going to do for other people through you. Always. So to mourn and then to receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit is to set you up to do what? To comfort somebody else who's going through the same thing you're going through. Life is not about me. Oh, I hate that. It's not about me. Say that with me. It's not about me. Who's it? It's about Jesus. And see, there's people out here who have yet to come to this church. And it's not about us. It's about them. And some of them are homosexuals, and some of them have failed in their marriages, and others of them have failed at work, and some have failed in other things. And they want to come here and not have a finger of judgment, but they want to come here and have an open arm of someone who has mourned and been comforted and can understand and say, you're loved. I love you, just as you are. Let's go to Jesus. <laughs> Let's go to Jesus. Because there's nothing that the life of Jesus has not already overcome. There's nothing. And that's what comfort's for. As we mourn, 
God breaks our heart. He fills us and he heals us and softens our heart so that the Spirit may give comfort not only to us but to others through us. We are called to be restorative, not condemning. The body of Christ is a family and the body seeks to comfort, heal, and restore. That's why we have CR. The other night I was here and there were several other step groups going on. (laughs) That's a wonderful thing. I meet with some guys here in a freedom group, freedom from sexual sin. We're trying to figure out where we're all going to meet. Man, I look for the night where there is no place to meet. We have to be here. And I mean, we have people coming in here and giving them comfort and loving on them. That's the Christian life. God wants to do that. As he breaks us, we're spiritually prosperous. As we mourn and our hearts are, are dealt with, he comforts us so that we can then comfort others. And that's the spiritual process. The other night I was in my men's freedom group. And we've met, I've met with them since 09, I think, seven years. And I, as I told someone, I said, we, we're going to meet till Jesus comes. I think it's uh, Daryl says that about CR. We meet every night till Jesus comes. And I, that night was tough because I had found out that my mother had terminal cancer. I also was dealing with the fact that my company was being sold and I might be out of a job. And then I'd gotten a call from somebody else in regards to some things going on. Uh, And then uh, some things going on with my family, some other stuff. And I had four things I was dealing with. And you see, everything comes to us to lead us into the narrow way, which is Jesus, the funnel. All of it comes for him. And I... uh, as I was sharing, we get in the groups of three for accountability, and as I was sharing with him, I broke down crying. And I literally just put my hands, I, it was uncontrollable. I, you ever been there? I could not stop. And as I was crying, I felt a hand on my shoulder, and another hand on my shoulder. And he said, Scott, I love you. I love you. And I was being comforted. And he just started praying. He just started praying for me. And that guy had gone through the exact same thing. He had lost his mother. He had lost his job. He had lost his daughter in a relationship problem that he's still trying to regain. And because of the pain and the mourning he had been through and the brokenness he had been through, what was he doing for me? He was comforting me. It wasn't, for, it wasn't about him. At that moment, it was for me. And there'll be a day when I give it away. I give it to somebody else. That's the life in the body. Does that make sense? That's why it's so important. This brokenness, this mourning for, spiritual, for being spiritually prosperous in the Lord. Now, there's a few examples I want you to see. A few examples. The first is King Manasseh. I also want to read something here real quickly. King Manasseh. You remember King Manasseh? He's the most wicked king in Judah. Probably of all the kings, he's the most wicked. He says he killed so many people that the streets ran red with blood in Jerusalem. And it says this in 2 Chronicles. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Sounds like me. 
Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Look at that. You see it? Do you see it? He wouldn't listen. What did God do? He brought the king of Assyria, took him with hooks. You know, I'm not even going to go there. I mean, that's bad. Took him all the way to Babylon. At this time, the Assyrian kingdom ruled over Babylon. And there they put him in prison. And while he was in prison, what did it say he do? When he was in distress, your distress comes for a reason. He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the Lord, the God of his fathers. He prayed to him. And what did God do? Ignore him? God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again. God responds to the broken and mourning heart. Listen, this guy was the most evil man. Maybe you think Hitler's bad. This guy is right there with him. God brings him back to Jerusalem, sets him back on the throne. And you know what Manasseh does? He destroys all the idols. I mean, this guy goes to town. He destroys all the idols, gets rid of all the people, all the priests and everybody that was doing the evil things, gets rid of all that, and he sets up there in Jerusalem, cleans out the temple, and makes it a place for worship of God alone. That's God. And do you know, when he mourned, he was then comforted by who? By God, who answered in the midst of his difficulty. Here's my life point. Brokenness leads us to seek the Lord in mourning and weakness. The brokenness of poverty of spirit spirit leads us to seek the Lord in mourning and weakness. There's a purpose behind it. There's a reason. And God uses it for your good and my good. And it's the process that God is working on. He leads us to seek the Lord in mourning and weakness. Jesus is another example of this. In Matthew 26, he's an example of mourning in the garden just before his death. Remember, he's right there with his disciples. And here here we have, it says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. But then what did he do? And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So he had the twelve, and they all came with him. But did he take all twelve? Who did he take? Peter, Jim, and John. Takes those guys with him. Says, you, you three, come with me. Where else did he take them earlier? Remember? Mount of Transfiguration. You, what's the point? You should have someone with whom you can be honest with and mourn. Jesus did. And if Jesus needed it, how much more do you and I need it? We ought to have someone, groups of two or three or whatever it may be, that you can be with. So Jesus gets there and he says, you know, I'm not doing that bad. I'm doing all right. But let's just pray together. My toes hurt me. Why don't you pray for my toe? Is that what he does? No. He says this. My soul, not my spirit, because the spirit was fine. My soul is very sorrowful. My mind, will, and emotions are sorrowful even to what? Death. Remain here and watch with me. Would you pray for me? Here's my life point from the life of Jesus. The Holy Spirit uses brokenness and mourning to bring us to honesty and transparency. One of the goals of mourning is to bring us into an honesty and a transparency of heart 
soul, and body. To be real. So that when you are with believers, or you come and talk to me, you can be real. And by the way, someone else who's been broken and mourned is accessible. Does that make sense? I mean, they are just accessible. Why? They're gentle. You can come to them. They'll pray with you because they've been there. Those who haven't won't. They're hard. They're judgmental. They're condemning. But those who've been broken say, come on, let's pray. Because when I condemn myself, I condemn others and point the finger. But when I realize that in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. I no longer point the finger at me. And when I'm no longer pointing the finger at me, I have no need to point my finger at someone else. And there's freedom and liberty in that. Because Jesus then is the focal point. He was honest and transparent. I pray for that. And I believe, you know, when you, when you think about CR and some of the things like this, you can be honest and transparent. People need to be honest and transparent. And so do we. I've had people come up and say, hey, you know, doing great. Doing good. And they're dying on the inside. Well, if you're dying on the inside, say so. And let's go to Jesus. And let's pray. That spirit where there's no condemnation. And we come to Jesus and we bring it to him. And he's enough. He's enough for that. Last one. Peter. Peter had to go through brokenness in mourning. Luke 22, it says this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That I prayed for you so you would get out of it. I have prayed for you so this wouldn't happen to you. No, I've prayed that your faith would not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Was he? No. No, he wasn't. He had not been broken. Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Until you deny me three times that you even know me. Now, I don't know what your sin is, but it, it doesn't match his. Match his. Denied Jesus in front of him. Matter of fact, Jesus looked at him right afterwards. So whatever your performance or failure is, can I assure you, it does not come to the level of Peter. Go to Jesus. Jesus is enough. My point is this. The Holy Spirit uses brokenness and mourning to expose the bankrupt condition of our flesh. And it is absolutely necessary that we see it and we receive it. Brokenness and mourning is, a, is, is, is the beginning part to being comforted and living in that comfort. But it must come so that we see the bankruptcy of our fleshly efforts, of our self-life. Self will never get it done. My efforts will never get it done. They're a failure. I tried, I told you, I tried to live the Sermon on the Mount. I couldn't do it. There's only one person who could, and that's Jesus. It's so that I will quit on Scott Cook who can never be reformed, he can never be negotiated with, he can never be regenerated, he can never be made into something different, he can only turn to Jesus and there in the Spirit, let the life of Jesus that's one with my Spirit work through me and let the cross have its way in Scott. And that's what this is talking about. To expose the bankrupt condition of our flesh. That's what Peter had to go through and guess what? So do we. We have to go through I want to finish up with just a diagram. 
of something. And this isn't something I learned in a book. I mean, this is something I lived, and I'll tell you my testimony and then finish up. And, and, and you don't have to agree with it. If you don't, that's fine. I'm simply telling you what God has revealed and given me light on. And some of you may have more light than I do. But what I have found is that brokenness is an essential starting point. Poverty of spirit, what Brother Dave shared last week. It's the starting point, not the ending. How do I know that? Psalms 51, 16, 17 says this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's the beginning point. Because the flesh life has to be dealt with. The second thing that God showed me through the cross is then we come into weakness, which is what we're talking about today. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10 says this, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness, not strength. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then what? I am strong. In your weakness, in your mourning, God comforts and works. God comforts and works. Then the cross applies some more in its humility. It takes me into humility. Because the way up is what? It's down. The way up is down. The good news is coming, I assure you. 1 Peter 5, 5a through 7 says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to what? The humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because why? He cares for you. It's simply turning your back on your self-efforts and looking in the Spirit to Jesus and saying, I can't do it. You always said you would. I'm looking to you and nothing else. Moment. By moment, I'm looking to you, and that's where he's going with us. Then what I have found is he brings us into the abiding. I begin Once I get to that point, there's only one place to go, and that's to abide in me. He says this, abide in me, and I in you, in John 15. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you what? Abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. When do a Scott ever get that? I go to the Beatitudes and think, wow, I'm going to do something for God. I'm going to get her done. And I fall flat on my face and come to God in humility and say, all I can do is look to you because you have to do it in me and through me. And then he brings us into a wonderful thing called rest. And in Hebrews 4, 9 through 11, he says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of what? Disobedience. And I could speak on this for hours about rest. Coming to the end of our striving. Aren't you tired? Anybody here want a good rest? Aren't you ready for Jesus to do it? He says, come and rest in me by faith and I'll do it through you. And you know what? Most of the time you won't realize it, but you'll have my peace and you'll be at rest in me. And I'll get the glory, not you. That's what people need to see anyways. And then what I found in my own life is there's fruitfulness. Galatians 5, 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. 
The fruits of the Spirit come as the brokenness and the weakness and the humility brings us to the person of Jesus and narrow way which is Jesus in the Spirit. We abide in Him. We begin to come into rest and realize that all our striving and all of our work is meaningless to God because the self-life is unacceptable to Him. And as we rest in Him, we are branches in the vine. And as I was watching branches the other day, I realized they don't do a thing I just kept looking at them. I was still waiting for them to do something, and they didn't do anything. And I'm going to go back and watch them some more, and they're not going to do anything. But wait a minute. Are they doing something? What are they doing? They're sucking life out of that vine, out of that trunk. Where are you sucking life from? Where are you getting that nourishment? If it's the world, if it's self, if it's other people, I got news for you. You're not at rest. That's a nice, I like that. That's, that's a good. Let's talk. It comes on many fronts, brother. And, and now it's on the recording. Man, I like that. Where are you getting life from? If you're getting it from the branch, that's life. That's the spirit. And you know what? The comfort comes, and it comes in so many different ways, and you don't even know it. When I was young, I got involved in pornography. I was a teenager. And when I did, uh, I thought, you know, I really shouldn't be doing this, and I would repent. And I'd go, you know, and then all of a sudden I find myself back. And that was my idol of choice. For some people, your idol of choice may be alcohol. Your idol of choice uh, may be to control. It could be anger, rage. Your idol of choice uh, could be work. It could be trying to get other people to approve of you or trying to get you to approve of yourself through what you do. The idols are all different, aren't they? They just happen to be my idol. And I lived a secret life, a parallel life. On the one hand struggling to be a believer, looking to Jesus, constantly rededicating. Remember the rededication? Man, I did it. Rededicated, rededicated, rededicated. Didn't do any good. And one day, in the late, uh, about 2003, my wife of 20 years said, I want out of this. And I don't want anything to do with you or God. And uh, we went to counseling, and in the middle of that, she had an affair, just to make sure that it was over. And so I found myself in my mother's house, in her back room, by myself, with this addiction on and off that I couldn't get rid of, with a wife who didn't want anything to do with me, having left the ministry earlier, probably a year earlier, to try and work on that marriage. And all my self-efforts to stop that sin and all my self-efforts to make my marriage work and all my self-efforts to make... You see, everybody thought I was great. All of that was a failure. And it was all part of God's process in my life to bring me into brokenness and to bring me into humility and to bring me into weakness, to mourn. And I was in, uh, I was cleaned out my mother's attic, 
And my father had some books, and there was a little book in there by James H. McConkie called The Surrendered Life. And when I picked that book out, it was as though the Lord said in my heart, I want you to read that. And I turned to the front of it, and I said, Father, that was written in 1904. Uh, No, thank you. (laughs) Aren't there some books written in 2004 I can read? Do you know the best books the devil has tried to get rid of, the old ones? They're the ones you ought to be reading. That stuff written today, I don't know about that. It's all filled with self. So I grabbed it, and I started, and it had hitherto and all kinds of stuff. But I came to this passage, and it broke me. And it says this, The body of the believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who comes in at conversion to abide forever, to walk in the Spirit instead of walking in the flesh, as he has hitherto done, is the whole secret of the believer's life of power, privilege, and peace. To thus walk in the Spirit, the first essential is the absolute yielding to God of the life which the believer has unto this time himself controlled and directed. And it broke me. And God just said, I love you. Not because you perform or you don't perform. Because you're my son. And I love you and I can't help but love you. Don't you see that? And I know you're in pain. And I know it's all, I've allowed all of it so that you will come to me. And I got on my knees and I put this book and I read it. And when I got to the end, there's a my consecration. And I read it and there's a little place for a date and, and sign. But somebody had already done that. It was Carl, Carl Cook, my father. 3676 signed Carl Cook. And my, my father, my heavenly father said, Son, if you'll do the same, I'll do in you what I did in him. And that day, I, I did it. I said, I don't even know how you make anything out of this mess. And I gave it to him. And step by step, since 2004 until today, 2016, God has been doing it. I quit trying to do it. And for the first time, I think, in my life, I really mourned. And I ended up going to CR not long after that. And I got to mourn with other people. But you know what? I got to be honest and transparent like Jesus. And then like Peter, remember? He went fishing and Jesus shows up. He says, Cast your nets over, they do, they get the fish, Peter realizes it's Jesus, and he heads for the shore. And Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. He got the comfort. He got the comfort. Don't fight the process. Enter into it by grace. Let the cross have its way. And what you'll find is it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And it's about those people who aren't even here yet. And it's about your brothers and sisters who he wants to comfort through you. And he does it by faith, moment by moment, as you let him.